Suddenly, about three months ago, everyone in Israel began speaking about the country of my youth. Canada. Canada? Canada. But depending upon who's saying it, the country means many different things. When M.K. Simcha Rotman and Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu use Canada, they're holding the country up as justification for the judicial overhaul package, saying, hey, what we're doing isn't that bad if gentle giant Canada does it too. That made this week's What Matters Now guest take notice. If Israel were to enact an override provision with all the protections of the Canadian Charter of Rights and Freedoms and within a constitution here, I would think differently and could even be supportive of such an override, provided it had all these protections. That's former Canadian Justice Minister Erwin Kotler. Kotler joined me this week to discuss how the use of Canada as an example in support of the judicial overhaul package is, well, fake news. We also talked about how Canada worked through its own constitutional crisis in the 1980s, how Israel is setting itself for trouble with the International Court of Justice and his fervent hope that the Jewish state will reach 75 with a consensual ratified people's constitution. In a week in which hundreds of thousands of Israelis spontaneously took to the streets to vote against the judicial overhaul with their feet, find out what matters now to international legal authority Erwin Kotler. With what seems like an endless amount of information at our fingertips, we tend to forget that wondering about things is really part of the journey to finding answers we're looking for. So when it comes to the hot topics of Israel, Judaism, and Zionism, there's so much to wonder about right now that it's hard to know where to turn. Enter the latest weekly podcast from Unpacked, Wondering Jews with Michal and Noam. Join hosts and educator extraordinaires Michal Biton and Noam Weissman as they tackle these topics and the uncomfortable questions that surround them, with the goal of working towards the answers together with their listeners. No matter where you're from, if you've ever wondered about anything, this is the podcast for you. So check it out. Subscribe to Wandering Jews with Michal and Noam on your favorite podcast app today. Wandering Jews is brought to you by Unpacked, a division of Open Door Media. Erwin, thank you so much for joining me today in our Jerusalem offices. It's been quite the week with a general strike and all sorts of tumultuous protests on the street. And now today, finally, all sorts of people are gathering around the table at President Isaac Herzog's residence and starting to discuss what could be, who knows, maybe the beginning of a, I don't know, constitution. So I ask you, Erwin, what matters now? Well, I think that this is an important and not only constitutional moment, but even a, a decisive one in all respects. And I'm hoping that the Hidabrut, the coming together for this necessary uh, conversation, long overdue, uh, will lead both to a process of reconciliation and to a substantive uh, development 
that could even bring us to the first time ever in Israel's 75 years to have finally a constitution uh, with an entrenched Bill of Rights. Okay, there's been a lot of comparisons to Canada throughout this whole three months of, uh, shall we say, constitutional chaos. And so many on both sides have put up Canada as an example of many different things, actually. And one of the key points of the more controversial sections of the judicial overhaul proposals has dealt with the override clause, or in Canada, I suppose it's called the notwithstanding clause. Now, that came into play, and I, I believe you protested against it when it came into play in the 1980s, but what is the notwithstanding clause in Canada to begin with? Well, the notwithstanding clause in Canada, and you're correct, I was opposed to its uh, inclusion in the Canadian Charter of Rights and, and Freedoms in our Canadian constitutional moment back in 1980 to 80. Uh, too, but it was included as part of the political bargain. But the main differences between the Canadian override, let's say, and the Israeli proposal, number one, uh, the override in Canada is within a charter of rights and freedoms, within a constitutional framework, not outside of it as would be uh, in Israel. Number two, it's within a federal uh, system. That federal system has its own uh, checks and balances. And the federal government undertook back then, and when I was Minister of Justice and Attorney General of Canada, I reaffirmed it, that we would never invoke uh, the notwithstanding clause. No, we would never invoke the override. So it was left only uh, to the provinces, and therefore its impact uh, is limited in that regard. Number three, and a very important point that is always ignored, the override in Canada does not apply to major categories of rights in the Charter of Rights and Freedoms does not apply, uh, for example, to minority language rights. Uh, it does not apply, and this is interesting because we have another notwithstanding clause in the Canadian Charter of Rights and Freedoms, which says, notwithstanding anything in this act, men and women are equal in all respects. So it does not apply uh, to gender equality. By the way, that's one of the only notwithstanding clause of it's like in the world that's the the right kind of notwithstanding clause to promote and protect a gender clause so it does not apply to, to major uh, categories number four it's got a sunset clause and so it lapses after five years and has to be reenacted again number five it is being constitutionally challenged in other words i can give one reason after another and i would conclude by saying if israel were to enact an override uh, provision with all the protections of the Canadian Charter of Rights and Freedoms and within a constitution here, I would think differently and could even be uh, supportive of such an override provided it had all these protections and with a majority of some 65 members to support it. 65 is still rather low, seeing as how the coalition is 64, but it would need one more voice, at least from the opposition. But it would also have to have all those other protections that I mentioned. <laughs> okay, it sounds like a Cinderella list. You may go to the ball if you get your chores done and you find something good to wear. But I wanted to also emphasize what you mentioned about how the Israeli system is just completely different than the Canadian system. Canada, of course, has a bicameral uh, system. Though I was thinking about it last night, and there are about 
38 million uh, Canadians and there are about 9 million Israelis. And the ratio of parliamentarians is about the same, I think, if I'm not mistaken. But what does this bicameral system do? Well, the bicameral system is um, very important, b both for the consideration and the adoption of, of legislation, because you need uh, both houses of parliament uh, involved in that regard. And that bicameral uh, system played a crucial role in our uh, constitutional moment. Uh, back in 1980, the uh, then Canadian Prime Minister, Pierre Elliott Trudeau, the father of the present Canadian Prime Minister Justin Trudeau, proposed as one of his first uh, initiatives when the Liberals came back uh, to power, uh, a, cha a Canadian Charter of Rights and Freedoms, something that he had been uh, speaking of uh, beforehand uh, and, and the like. What then ensued was a sustained, deliberative process anchored in the Joint House Senate Committee on the Constitution. That met both in 1980 through 1981, and hundreds of groups appeared before it and made uh, submissions. Hundreds of others uh, also submitted uh, briefs and, and the like. So you had, as I said, a sustained, deliberative, engaged process overseen by both uh, houses of, of parliament with a representation from uh, all parties. And so you had this engaged process. And at the end of the day, when the Charter of Rights and Freedoms was adopted, it was very different from the one proposed by Trudeau. And he himself said at the end of that process, when uh, the Charter of Rights and Freedoms and Constitution was adopted, he said, you know, this began as the Trudeau Charter of Rights and Freedoms. It has ended up as the People's Charter of Rights and Freedoms, and it is all the better for it. And so I would like to uh, see a similar process uh, involved here. The other thing that's uh, very important, I think, with regard uh, to Israel is that the adoption of the Constitution of Charter of, of Rights and Freedoms, Canada moved from being a parliamentary democracy to being a constitutional democracy, from the sovereignty of parliament to the sovereignty of the Constitution, to the courts and the Supreme Court being not only the arbiters of legal federalism and disputes between the federal government and the provinces, as it had been for 115 years since Confederation in 1867 till 1982, but it now became the guarantor of human rights, not because the Supreme Court sought that, but because Parliament vested in the Supreme Court that authority for the protection of uh, human rights under a constitution and an entrenched charter of rights and freedoms. Okay, so cast your mind back to the early 1980s, if you can, and, and try and explain to me the pros and cons of both systems, because this couldn't have passed. I mean, Canadians are polite, right? But this couldn't have passed so easily as you're somewhat describing. It sounds very uh, utopian, like that uh, now at the end we have this people's charter. But I imagine there was some uh, real angst about deciding who holds the power, the politicians or the courts, as you said, the parliament or the constitution? Well, it was interesting. I, I came before that joint uh, House-Senate Committee on the Constitution on behalf of three different groups. Uh, I was there on behalf of the uh, Canadian uh, Jewish Congress, where I was serving as president at the time. We set up a special committee on the Constitution that was headed by major Canadian jurists, 
including uh, former Dean of Law and McGill, uh, Maxwell Cohn. I came there on, on behalf of Indigenous peoples, and I came there on behalf of the Canadian Civil Liberties Association. And this is irrelevant to your question, because we came before that joint House-Senate Committee and the Constitution, and the headline the next day after our appearance was front page and the Toronto starts, thanks, but no thanks. We said, if this is what you are offering us, we don't want it because it does not vest in the Supreme Court, in the judiciary, sufficient authority and independence to protect the Constitution and to protect rights. We believe that the government and the parliament would still have too much authority under the uh, Charter of Rights and Freedoms. So we sought that kind of rebalancing, uh, that kind of relationship between the three branches of, of government for the purposes of protecting uh, the free and fair elections and parliament role and executive responsibility, but also an independent judiciary with the authority for judicial review. But even today, Canada isn't a perfect system. Uh, if I'm not mistaken, there are, what, nine Supreme Court justices, and they're politically appointed, no? Well, this is, a, again, a, 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 the situation here is not always understood because not only did uh, the Israeli government people point to Canada for the override. They point, they look to Canada also with regard to the uh, judicial appointments process, but it's very different. They are correct in that up till uh, 2004, it was what they claimed it to now be. In other words, the appointments of the Supreme Court were by the Prime Minister on the recommendation of the Minister of, of Justice. The process was not open, uh, transparent, uh, public, uh, interactive, and, and the like. Uh, <clears throat> when I became Minister of Justice and Attorney General uh, back in 2003, the irony is that I then invoked the Israeli model for choosing Supreme Court justices because I thought this was a much more inclusive representative model that had on its uh, panel here ministers, parliamentarians, Supreme Court judges, and the like, and recommended that model for Canada. That model was not adopted, but it did lead to the model that, say, that we now have, which is uh, the final appointment is still made by the uh, Prime Minister on the recommendation of the Minister of Justice. However, this follows the an independent uh, advisory committee of eight people um, on whom sit uh, three people appointed by the Minister of Justice, two of whom must be from the public, then a representative from the Canadian Bar Association, a representative of the Federation of, of Law Societies of, of Canada, it's part of the federalist system, a representative of the Canadian Law Deans, that brings back a representative of the Indigenous Bar Association to reflect in uh, uh, diversity. And like in other words, it's an eight-person independent committee. The first chair of this advisory committee, for example, was the former conservative prime minister of Canada, Kim Campbell, who was appointed by a liberal government, Justin Trudeau, to chair this independent nonpartisan advisory committee, whose makeup is of the most distinguished of those eight peoples in each of the categories. And they are themselves to then engage in a 
process involving uh, <clears throat> the recruitment of and engagement with uh, prospective candidates, and in particular as an inventory or protocol whom they are uh, to consult with. The process is public, transparent, reported upon, etc. They then recommend at the end of this engaged process three to five uh, candidates. Those three to five candidates are given to the Minister of Justice. He then himself engages in another par uh, process, which also includes uh, uh, meeting with members of Parliament of both houses, etc., etc. They finally come with the uh, list that is agreed upon consensus. That is then given uh, to the uh, Prime Minister, and then uh, a candidate is chosen. But after a very sustained, deliberative, open, transparent, engaged process. And he must recommend somebody from the list that was generated by this advisory committee? Uh, he's not obliged, but it, that is the clear uh, expectation. And, and that's, and what's, that's happened? what's happened. Okay. Yeah. That's a long process. That's not It's a very long process. And interestingly enough, we finally now have, as a result of the most recent Supreme Court appointment, the first ever indigenous person to sit on the Supreme Court of Canada, an indigenous woman. And prior to that, out of that same uh, process, we had uh, the first member of uh, the Baha'i community, Canadian Baha'i, to sit on the Supreme Court. So you can see that it's reflecting, you know, uh, diversity as well as excellence resulting from that, uh, you know, protracted and uh, sustained deliberative uh, process. So now that Israel is poised because basically this legislation of judicial appointments is ready, prepped for its voting, to abandon this more diverse uh, system of choosing Supreme Court judges, what do you foresee? Well, I, I think if the proposal uh, of the Judicial Selection Committee, as was uh, proposed by uh, Levine and Rothman, uh, I believe it would not be a process that would be inclusive, representative, anchored in excellence, and the like. The, the ju Judicial Selection process proposed by the government which I hope now will be changed, politicizes uh, the appointment of judges. There is a commanding majority for the uh, <clears throat> government's representatives on that uh, committee, and out of uh, nine in the proposed committee or 11, uh, you just need a, a bare uh, majority, and that bare majority is controlled by the government uh, representatives, so you would have a clear, uh, you know, politicized process with politicized appointees, uh, that would, in my view, uh, diminish the respect for an independent uh, judiciary and the authority of its decision-making and the like. And it wouldn't end there, because it's not only that the process is uh, politicized for the selection of judges, you also have, in addition to the override, what I call a preemptive uh, override, which is requiring a full bench of 15 Supreme Court justices, and depending whether it's the Levine or the Rothman option, either unanimous or 80% uh, of the judges agreeing, which is simply something that is never going to happen. So even that politicized court will not really have any le legitimacy as well as authority or capacity for judicial review. So you'll both politicize it 
and in fact uh, neutralize it. The surge in anti-Semitism since the October 7th attacks has changed the Jewish community's relationship with a slew of social and political issues. In the newest episode of The Glue, Jewish Federations of North America President and CEO Eric Fingerhut talks to Congressman Richie Torres, who has proved to be a pro-Israel bridge builder about everything from DEI to social media. Their conversation is fascinating. Listen to it and subscribe to The Glue with Eric Fingerhut wherever you get your podcasts. You talked about your role as being Justice Minister and Attorney General. That seems rather vast. Here in Israel, it's likewise a very vast role. Do you think here in Israel it should remain such a huge role? Well, that's an interesting question. Actually, when I became minister, I had three major responsibilities. I was minister of justice, I was attorney general, and I was the head of the prosecutorial authority. I felt that that was vesting too much power in one individual. And so I recommended at the end of my uh, term to the successor government, which was a conservative government, that uh, the prosecutorial authority be hived off and be made independent. And that was accepted. I made another recommendation, which has not yet been accepted, that the Minister of Justice and Attorney General should also be separate people. Because really, at this point, uh, it's somewhat of a contradiction in terms. Because as the Attorney General, uh, I was required to give independent legal counsel to the government. As Minister of Justice, I was part of the government. And if the government made a decision which rejected the the opinion I gave as an independent legal advisor, then I was bound by the government's decision, and I could not even speak about it because I was bound by solicitor-client privilege. So I'm still in favor of the Minister of Justice and Attorney General positions being divided. With regard to Israel, the positions are uh, divided, but one has to ask oneself, and I think one should revisit the role of the Attorney General here as to whether that Uh, the decisions of the Attorney General should, in fact, uh, be binding or binding in all cases. And and what do you think? Yeah, I think that the advice of the Attorney General, uh, because it's independent and because uh, of the expertise of the Attorney General, must be given appropriate uh, recognition and respect. But I'm wondering whether it should be binding in all respects. I think that's where it should be revisited. Certain matters of important uh, security, uh, public policy may not be ones that should be subjected to a binding uh, recommendation by the Attorney General. Canada is only one of the countries that Israel has been compared to recently. Of course, those who are against the judicial overhaul compare this package to turning Israel into Hungary or Poland or Russia. What would you say about these comparisons? Well, um, I think the the situation is different. While I objected to the package of proposals because I thought it would undermine the independence of the the judiciary, it would... uh, 
more or less eviscerate judicial review for the reasons I mentioned, politicize decision making, etc., etc. Uh, I also believe that Israel uh, is still a vibrant democracy. I think the uh, hundreds of thousands of demonstrators week after week uh, reflected that. And uh, after all is said and done, even if these proposals were to be uh, adopted, you'd still have a free and fair uh, elections. You'd still have an independent press. Uh, you'd still have uh, freedom of association and assembly, and most importantly, you would have still a vibrant civil society. Uh, again, I uh, shared all the reasons why I think the, the, the package of proposals would be prejudicial and detrimental, but it would not turn Israel uh, into a dictatorship, nor do I believe it was take Israel down the road uh, to Hungary and Poland for all the reasons that I mentioned. This is a vibrant democracy. One of the uh, placards that most moved me when I was in the demonstration last uh, Saturday was a, a young woman who was holding a, a placard and said in, in Hebrew, uh, democracy is in our soul. And I think the manifestations that we have been seeing week after week and the spontaneous uh, demonstrations that occurred after the prime minister fired defense minister Galantwin had six, seven hundred thousand coming into the streets spontaneously. That was democracy is in our soul. So I have faith in the Israeli people, in the Israeli democracy in, in that regard. So I don't think it'll go down the road to Hungary and Poland, but it will go down the road if that this package were to be adopted in all the respects that I mentioned to, in fact, uh, undermine the uh, independence of the judiciary and the capacity for judicial review. Do you think that if this package is adopted, that Israel's standing in, for example, the International Court of Justice will be changed? I think that as we have seen, the very prospect of this being adopted has already uh, harmed Israel's uh, standing. You see the comments that have been forthcoming, including from Israel's uh, most important strategic ally, the United States. But with regard to the International uh, Criminal Court, for example, you've made a very important point uh, because the reason that the court and I submitted a brief to the ICC as to why it should not have jurisdiction. Um, and the main point I made there was the principle of complementarity. That is, that because Israel has an independent uh, judiciary and an independent uh, Supreme Court, then there's no authority for the ICC to open up uh, investigations and, and prosecutions because that would breach the principle of complementarity, which precludes that kind of investigation and prosecution. However, if uh, the, this package of reforms were to be adopted, it might lead some to argue that, well, uh, there's no longer an independent judiciary. The principle of complementarity does not apply. Therefore, let us open uh, 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 continue with the investigation and, in fact, uh, in, uh, prosecute and issue arrest warrants and the like. So this could have uh, followed, particularly where you have those in the international uh, community uh, who, to begin with, uh, cannot be said to be uh, independent uh, reviewers, but some of them have themselves uh, their own biases, 
and then they could weaponize the what is happening here for purposes of saying there's no complementarity, let's prosecute. And when you're saying arrest warrants, you're talking about even just the regular soldiers, right, who might be leaving Israel and, and stepping foot into a country that could possibly be hostile. Yes, it, it, you know, it would make any country that is a state uh, party to the Supreme, uh, to the International uh, Criminal Court, um, a place that could, in fact, be called upon uh, to issue, not only to issue, to, in, in fact, enforce an arrest warrant. It would put, you know, Israelis and Israel in a very difficult position. And how far away from that do you see us if this uh, package is adopted? Well, I, as I say, I hope that the cooler and rational heads will prevail and it wouldn't be adopted. But if it were adopted, it still, in my view, would not end complementarity. It would allow those who would like to themselves politicize the International Criminal Court and weaponize it uh, for lawfare purposes, as it's called, to then use that as a means uh, to issue arrest warrants. So I, I think we should protect ourselves uh, in that sense. In other words, those who are of the community of democracies and have been concerned by what is happening here are really advising Israel, among other things, you know, don't go down that road because we may not be able to protect you uh, if this complementarity thing then becomes uh, weaponized uh, as a result of this package of reform proposals. There are many who talk about this package as the pendulum swinging back from the revolution of the 1990s, in which, uh, of course, then uh, Supreme Court Chief Aaron Barak took on a little more power than had been. And I've heard rumors, at least, that you were somehow involved in this. Is that correct? Well, this is an interesting point here. Um, after the adoption of the Charter of Rights and Freedoms in Canada, you know, I was here as a, a visiting a professor at the Hebrew University in 1990. I was and had been in touch before that, you know, with uh, Dan Meridor, who was Minister of Justice with Amnon Rubenstein and the like. And what is not that well known is that the uh, 1992 uh, basic law on human dignity and liberty was itself based on Section 1 of the Canadian Charter of Rights and Freedoms. It wasn't based on all the other aspects, but on that foundational principle of Section 1. And when I was then uh, discussing it with Dan Meridor, I was hoping that Israel would have its constitutional moment similar to Canada and adopt a Charter of Rights and Freedoms. It adopted only the basic law on human dignity and liberty, which is very important. And so th that constitutional revolution was not really Barack's constitutional revolution. It actually was the government of the day and parliament that adopted it. So I think it's been a misnomer to refer to the Barack revolution because it was a parliamentary enactment, the same way that in Canada, Parliament vested in, in the courts the authority for judicial review and not the courts who usurped it. In 1992, it was the government which vested in the Supreme Court that authority and not Barack who usurped it. Yes, in the uh, Bank of Morocco decision in 1995, he gave effect uh, to this uh, 
constitutional revolution, but its initiative was really a governmental and parliamentary one uh, in Israel. And that, I think, has been uh, ignored. And I would like to see government and parliament go further now and adopt a constitution uh, whose centerpiece would be the Charter a charter of rights and freedoms, anchored also in the Megillat Atzmaut, the Declaration of Independence, which is a remarkable uh, document, uh, which affirms the principle of equality seven times in that document, which speaks as it does of you know Israel's uh, ind- indigeneity and so on. I think that that would be a, w- a wonderful framing uh, of a new ch- uh, constitution and charter of rights for Israel. You know Israel very well and Israelis very well, up close and personal. Do you really think that we are ripe for this constitutional moment to actually bear fruit? Do you think that even though people are gathering around the president's table, that something amazing, something wonderful will happen out of it? Well, you know, if the uh, Israel in 1948 you know, amidst the war, was able to then come together and adopt a declaration of independence that have ed- represents of every single party, including the Communist Party, etc., being signatories to it. Why not now, 75 years later, celebrate that initial constitutional moment of the adoption of the Declaration of Independence to then frame it now as a centerpiece for a new constitution and use the present uh, constitutional moment and maybe the dialectics of what has been happening uh, up to now uh, to bring the people uh, together and anchor it in a, as we said in Canada, but it can be said for a people's uh, constitution, a people's uh, charter of rights anchored in the principle of uh, Israel as a Jewish and democratic and just state. But do you really think it will happen? I'm hopeful and I'm, I, you know, I'm always accused of being a congenital optimist, but I think uh, it's good to have that type of uh, inspirational uh, possibility because that could underpin a more uh, hopeful dialogue when they come together, not only, let's say, to revise the proposals that were put forth by the government, but to say, you know what, this is a historical moment. This is a constitutional moment. This is a time in history on our 75th anniversary when we can, in fact, carve out uh, the constitution for Israel as a Jewish, democratic, indigenous, just state. And I think that that uh, would really be the time to do it and anchored in the principles, as I said, of equality, diversity, and the like. May we all be afflicted with your optimism. Thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you for allowing me the opportunity to share some thoughts with you. Pleasure. This week, it felt like Israel filled more than its quota of crises. A dramatic firing of Defense Minister Yoav Gallant, followed by citizens flooding to the streets in protest. A nationwide general strike, followed by a pause to the judicial overhaul package. A tense showdown between President Joe Biden and Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu. And perhaps maybe even the beginnings of negotiations towards a compromise led by Israeli President Isaac Herzog. My wish for all of us going into this Passover holiday is that we should all be like Erwin Kotler and view this moment in Israel as four cups half full. This podcast was produced and edited by The Pod Waves. 
Thanks as always to my partner Jessica Steinberg and high fives to Mick Weinstein. Special thanks to legal correspondent Jeremy Sharon for connecting me with Erwin Kotler. Have a comment about this or other episodes of What Matters Now? Email us at podcast at timesofisrael.com. Look for more What Matters Now episodes and subscribe wherever you find your podcasts. Thank you.